I'm I'm curious about his play on jouissance, which all which also means to play. So when you describe it in this manner, you know, yeah, that word is like such um, it just holds so much of the spirit of the language that you know you can have this um, hyper arousal in both playing as a child, um, you know, as a child would play a game, or if you play tennis or something like that. And the way you describe it, you kind of, you're playing with the words and you're now taking it into that field of, you know, enjoying coffee. Yes, yes, yes. And let's not forget that if the moi in French points to the me that is your ego, the je in French, which is not too far removed from the je in jouissance, points to another form of human subjectivity, another way of living a way to outlive the ego. You see, that was what Deleuze and Guattari figured out for those of you that come from different traditions. What Deleuze and Guattari fundamentally figured out is that the way anti-Oedipus experiences life is by simply outliving reality. You can just outlive your previous self. And that's the jouissance we're talking about here. And one of the ways you do that is in the field of play. So I really appreciate that analogy. I'm glad that your ears are pricked to this. We were on page 677. Hey, Sam. Yep. Um, I just have another question following up that. And maybe my little attempt to extend your drawing will make my question more clear. So I kind of had like the repetition that is visible. Um, yes, got it, yes. So just like the way that the return of the repressed kind of continues to be up and Yes, glorious, but here's, here's what I would, go ahead, okay. Oh, I was just gonna, so my question is about the jouissance, that like that is where jouissance comes in, but over time, it becomes lessened. I'm just wondering if you can say more about that. Yeah, that's ideal. I would say ideally, jouissance becomes less. So somebody, fi somebody finally, for instance, is out with a friend and their friend says, you know what, man, isn't this how your last relationship ended too? And you're like, oh, fuck, they're right. And that's when you start thinking like, wait, what's going on with me? You start thinking the truth of what you actually said. The true, it is actually true that it's not them, it's you, right? The line that allowed you to break up was in fact a statement of truth. It's not you, it's me. And what you learn in that moment is, man, maybe it is me. Maybe for real, for real, it's me. And that could be this loss of jouissance. It's ideal because let's face it, that's usually not what happens. There are many people in need of therapy that don't get it. And they don't get it because they don't experience that loss of jouissance, that maladaptive jouissance. They still get off on their symptoms. And some people spend their whole lives in horrible codependent relationships in which they each are enjoying their symptoms. The hysteric couples well with the obsessive. The obsessive has someone to control and the hysteric has someone to prod. They make for a terrifically codependent relationship and very rarely one that lends them to co-parent counseling, to couples counseling, to anything of that ilk. 
because they enjoy their symptoms too much. So I say ideally the symptoms and their enjoyment would fade. Or let's rephrase, the symptoms would remain, but they would no longer be paying off or nourishing that maladaptive side. They're no longer getting you off. You're just tired at some level. And that could be um, how it would bring them to you. I would just say one more thing though, Santi, about your chart there. I'm returning to Jared's point here about the, how the letters would be all jumbling up. Um, what you would see at each iteration of this return of the repressed is some sort of like a, like dredging something up from the bottom of the sea. It comes up and it's got all of these tendrils hanging down to all of this other shit. As time goes on, as I understand the unconscious, all of these letters start amalgamating and congealing and growing onto each other. And so the interpretive work that is psychoanalysis becomes even more difficult because now you don't just have a Y that repeats at the next level, like a Y2. You would have um, an X, a Y, and a Y2. So all of the letters start to pop as well. And what can happen is the velvet, that feeling of velvet, that signifier can get connected to another signifier. And so suddenly you find yourself no longer connected to the original signifier of the original event, but now velvet has become felt, has become something about a pool table. And so you get these like further removes as time goes on. You can still do the work. The work is premised on your ability to do it. But nevertheless, it makes it extremely difficult because the letters just keep compounding. So I like your numbering there, so long as we recognize that that's a different why. It's an additional why. Hold on, let me switch the speaker view so I can see this. Yes, yes, emphasis on the ellipses. Yes, yes. Yep, that's the idea. And so- Thank you so much. You bet. And I would just say that were you to try and practice some of these techniques, that would be what your case notes look like. It would be like this elaborate detective bulletin board with tacks in there and yarn and shit connecting different experiences. You have to do this work of mapping the unconscious. It's a space, some place to be mapped. Um, I want to emphasize, though, that this structure of language that we're talking about at the level of the unconscious is no different from how a dictionary works. Some of you I know are a little out on this, so let me just be really clear. This is how a dictionary works. If I open a dictionary and I look up the word cat, I'm not just going to have a clear definition. I'm going to see other words, furry, four-legged, asshole. And I have to look at each of those words and say, do I know what furry means? If you're new to a language, you know the frustration of this. Like if you've ever tried to have a dictionary that is in the language that you're learning. So, you know, if you're working on Twee and you get the Twee dictionary and you look up a word in Twee, you're like, damn it, it's full of more Twee words I have to look up. So you look up X and it points you to A, B, and C. Now you have to look up A, which points you to C, D, and F. B, which points you to G, H, and I. C, which, you see what I'm saying? 
The idea is that language, like a dictionary, works like um, almost like a constellation. It's a network, even better, if you prefer the digital metaphor, where you have one term that you go to look up, and it points you to other terms that in turn point you to other terms. And what you wind up is this node-like constellation of signifiers. This is what a dictionary looks like. And it is precisely this that you just saw in Santi's drawing. That's what this looks like mapped. Now he was mapping it linearly, much as I was like as an equation with this, this, that, this, that was that. But the idea realistically is that this would not even be a two-dimensional element. This is like the Death Star's blueprint as they throw it up on the screen and it spins and shit. And you can see like the interiors of it, the contours. It's truly like a constellation. The plane that forms Orion is not formed because all the stars are perfectly equidistant from you, the viewer. What in fact is represented is not just the differential system of spacings between those stars, but also the temporal dynamic. The light that you're viewing in Orion's belt started much further and longer ago than that of the sword. A constellation is what the dictionary looks like. That is also what the unconscious looks like. Because in order to understand that why too, you have to understand the why that preceded it. And in order to look up why, you have to understand X too, and then X, and suddenly you're in it. So if you start getting lost when you hear the Lacanian's famous phrase of the unconscious is structured like a language, the word I want to come to your mind is simply dictionary, where you have to look up other words in order to understand the word that you wanted to look up originally. That differential system where a cat doesn't equal furry, but furry is needed in order to understand cat, is called language. That um, is language. Sorry, I just had a, a feeling. Uh, I was going to say question, but it's more of a feeling. Um, and when you talk about the unconscious, it's, it just seems a little presumptuous to me to think that we can categorize or draw a map of the unconscious. Um, as the analysts ourselves. I mean, I think interpretively, maybe it could help in some ways, but I just feel like um, for something that's so unconscious between both of us, I mean, we're working together to make something conscious and wait and see what comes forward through that cauldron, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting a bit lost with the, the line drawing and the unconscious. Yeah, the idea is you just keep track. You keep track of the signifiers and the constellation will appear. That's the wager. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. And you'll be surprised at how long analysis often takes. Even in a given session, Lacan practiced what was called a variable length session. So sometimes you showed up and talked for five minutes, and then it kicks you out. Good enough. See you next week. Sometimes you were showing up multiple times a week. Sometimes you show up and talk for three hours. Three hours is what it would take in order for him to get another star on the constellation. So these variabilities depend on the analyst, they depend on the analyzand. Sometimes it takes an extremely long time 
But the job, if the unconscious is truly an other place, an other scene, your job is to map it. That mapping is the coming of terms. That mapping is what allows somebody to bring to, to come to terms with all the weird little stars in their life. Because think about it. When you look at the night sky, it's tempting just to see a bunch of stars. And in fact, I kind of trip. I've got this app on my phone where I go out in the night and I like hold it up to the star, stars and I can see all the constellations. They show me all the constellations, one of these like star apps. Man, that thing freaks me out. And when I initially got the app, it was set up so that when I held my phone up to the night sky, the constellations would not just appear in the same proportion as the stars of which they're comprised. Instead, the app would make the constellation leap out of my phone at like three times the size of what it actually is in the sky. And let me tell you, that shit was horrifying. I got scorpions, fucking horses and lions and stuff leaping out of the night sky at me. It was horrific. Ideally, the picture that you helped the analyzan draw would not be horrific. It would be one star at a time. But that picture, that picture that you draw is a picture of them. What you're fundamentally mapping is them. And they have to look at that map eventually and see themselves in it and say, oh, this is why I am the way I am. This is me. Not me in the egotistical sense, but me in the sense of this is my truth. All of the weird stars that used to just hang above me in the night sky, now they all hang together. Now it all makes sense. That's that yeah, I can't help. I, I can't help but feel like it's just like too much um, wanting of cohesion in the unconscious. Uh, like what happened to the abject horror of the unconscious or the aspects of um, being disorganized? A life of abjection cannot be lived. And if horror never dissipates, well, the world, the, the, the psychic experience, the clinical experience of a horror that never dissipates is called psychosis. That is what oh. psychotic is up to. That's why their head is wrapped in tinfoil. Now, I'm not saying that psychoanalysis can't be used to treat psychosis. It can. And Lacan started by working with psychotic patients, institutionalized beings. Freud, right, you know, he starts with women who are straight up neurotic and rich and white and Victorian. Lacan, he cuts his teeth in the insane asylum. He cuts his teeth with psychotics. What he learns about language is learned from people who have a very disruptive relationship to language. The psychotic has a disoriented relationship to language. And that's where Lacan is getting a lot of this. That's where he gets his start. But I would just like to say that um, a horror that doesn't dissipate, psychically speaking, is usually a mark of psychosis. That's part of the issue with the psychotic is that they never stop being invaded by huge imaginary others. They're always under assault. The horrors of the stars are always upon them. But our reality is intrinsically horrifying, and that won't ever go away. Let me rephrase. The real is horrifying. Reality is just the opposite. 
Reality is the sphere in which things hang together. Coming to terms, I would say, is about introducing a new kind of reality into the existence of the subject, one that is not so horrific. I appreciate where you're coming from, um, but the idea here is that there are ways to come to terms with the horror that is your unconscious. And it's really not that horrific. But there are ways to come to terms with it that make it, um, what, what would be a good word for this, able to be metabolized. You see, that's the issue. Right now, the unconscious that fuels that totally whack dream you had last night, it's the unconscious is trying to help you metabolize what it has in it. The problem with that alphabet soup is that you can't quite digest it yet. And what analysis helps you do is metabolize the alphabet soup, metabolize the unconscious in a way that is not so full of shards, nightmares, returns of the repressed, not so maladaptive in its existence. Quite the opposite, in fact. In fact, what you would want to do again is look into the night sky and say, there I am. Hey, Sam, can I ask you something real quick? It just came up when you said metabolized. Um, I know you're not really coming from this from the psychoanalysis piece, but it sounds like like Kleinian and like object relation stuff of these like annihilation anxieties being able to be metabolized by the child. Does that have any connection? I have no idea. Cool. Cool. But it's like governed by a good enough mother. And yeah. I would, like our role is that. And then in therapy is essentially being reparenting in that way. I can't speak to that kind of like transferential relationship of reparenting and stuff like that. I can tell you what Lacan says about objects. I can tell you what he says about reparenting and countertransference and the like, um, but I can't speak to these other traditions, which is why I'm so happy to be here with you all. Let the signifiers of the barred other be heard. I am not the other with meaning. Okay, so let's see here. Unless there's anything else, anybody else got a burner that they had just have to get out of their system right now? Yeah, can I just see the um, the graph again real quick, Sam? I don't know, was this it? Yeah, that guy. So I had a question, is Z, the uh, Z term, is that like the questioning that occurs when the uh, sort of return of the repressed comes up? Like, is that the, why does velvet make me uh, Mm, I really like the way that you just put that, because one of the great opportunities in this graph's development is the point at which it starts to look like a question mark. And here I am, of course, referring to the graph as represented on page 690, 815 in the French. And you can see the question at the top. And it is a retroactive question. Chevoi, what do you want? Now, I like that question a lot. I like also that the two little fish hooks at the top, they look like a question mark that ends in the circle that has the A in it. It shows that this is an inquiry but I also like and find rather brilliant the way that Hunter just put it. 
The key question is not what. The key question is why. Why am I this? Why is this me? Why did that just happen? That kind of curiosity, that kind of curiosity is also at the start of Lacanian psychoanalysis. Why am I me? Initially, it becomes and is directed at the analyst. Initially, the patient shows up and says, what do they want from me? Which is how you can see Lacan working through it at the top of 690 here. What do they want from me? And you might even have a patient that asks that of you. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what do you want from me? What do you want to hear from me? Do you want to hear that I had a shitty childhood? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? It's always the question we put to the other. What do you want for dinner? What do you want from me? Help me be the thing that helps you meet your desire. The goal, though, is to take that curiosity about the analyst and eventually direct it back towards the patient. So that eventually the question then becomes not what do you want, but why am I so fucking curious about that? What is it about me that makes me so desperate to know what you want? Why am I so latched on to you? What would you telling me what you want if you could, which you cannot, do for me? Why do I need to know so badly? So that question, the way that Hunter puts it, the question of why is a really important one here. Much different from the question of what. And this really is fundamental to how desire works. Everybody knows what they want. If I ask my brother what he wants for his birthday, he gets out his wallet and he has a card in there. And on that card is written all the things that he wants. And it's all written like at different registers and stuff. It's like, he's like, he looks at me, he's like, oh, this guy, he's got like 15 bucks. Okay, so what can he give me for 15 bucks? And he goes down the list and he's like, ah, oh, here's the object. Here's what I want. The object of desire is always shifting because what he wants this year, he'll want something else next year. The question of why is different. Not what do I want, but why do I want to? What is the cause of my desire? And I'll just elusively say that the answer to that question of why is lack. The cause of my desire is lack. I'm missing something. Maybe even just the experience of missing is what causes desire. And the hope is that the object will plug that hole, fill that gap, complete that void, but it doesn't. And so you try a different object to complete that. But the question of why is always answered the same, because I lack. And that lack is symbolized by the S with a dash through it. That is a barred subject, a lacking subject. And that is the subject that ideally you would come to terms with which is why I think Hunter's question is great because it puts us on the path. Z shows that subject on the path of recognition, self-recognition. Why am I this way? <clears throat> okay. Did Lacan ever talk about his own like self-reflexivity in his theories, like um, his own lack perhaps, or I he think what was. we call shadow? 
He does, but but only ever elusively. I think one of the um, I think he could have done a lot more to allow himself to allow people to see him less as the demagogue that he cultivated. People very much treated him as um, the other that was not barred, that did not lack, that had all the answers, which is why I'm never going to tire in this class of telling you I don't know. And I'm gonna emphasize it every time. I don't know Young. Have I read Young? Yes, more than you probably. But I don't know Young. I don't know object theory. I don't know Klein. I don't know. Lacan didn't say that enough. And I think he would have been better served if he did. In the full graph of desire, you can see this with fantasy between a signifier of the barred other and a signifier of an other who has all the meanings. It's on page 817 in the French, 692 in the English. The fantasy that so many of his students had was that he would be the lower circle, a big other that was whole, that had all the answers, little s being answers. I think he would have been better served if he had encouraged them to see him instead as a barred other and showed them more signifiers of the fact that he did not have all the answers. He was all too ready to have them. And so to answer your question, yes, he does do that kind of self-reflexive work, but I don't think personally that he did enough because unfortunately what his work produced were a bunch of sycophants, people who are so desperate to get it right that they don't have any room to realize how organic all of these conceptions are. Lacan's very practice of developing this theory demonstrates that he is a barred other. What he says about fantasy on page 692 of this essay is different from what he says about fantasy in other parts of this book. Coherence and consistency were not his standards here. In fact, what you have to remember and anybody who's an astute reader of Lacan will tell you this. The reason why he does it this way, the reason why he writes in such a dense fashion, the reason why if you read his seminars, he's just all over the place, is because he's trying to perform for analysts to be the unconscious. He wants to show people just how weird and foreign this way of speaking and writing is. There's a very real sense in which to read Lacan's writing is to like have a dream where one second you're here and the very next second you're totally somewhere different. You just never know what's around the corner. And he did that on purpose. A lot of people think, oh, he writes in this obscure fashion in order to prove he's smart, in order to test the disciples and all this kind of nonsense. Not in the least. He's actually trying to show you on the page what that alphabet soup known as the unconscious looks like. This is his constellation. And a careful reader of Lacan will also see that this is him having his self-reflexive moment. You can see him and his barred status in these writings. We're not there yet. For some of you, this is your first time ever even reading Lacan. But I wanna let you know that after multiple readings, you can start to see him. And I would just suggest that he probably did that on purpose. 
because part of what the analyst is also doing in therapy is keeping their cards extremely close to their chest. Countertransference is a necessary but bad word in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Keep your shit to yourself. Transference is great. That's where it all begins. But you, as analyst, if they tell a joke, don't laugh. When they get serious, I dare you to venture a smirk. They need to know, the analyzand needs to know that you are cool, calm, and collected. If I try to keep it 100 with you here, you need to keep it 300 with them there. The analyst is someone who keeps their shit under wraps. And that's important to note here. And that's also why you got to dig pretty hard to find Lacan, Jacques-Emile Lacan, in these writings. Because what he's trying to do is write from a different place. He's trying to write the unconscious. This is alphabet soup. And it becomes more and more clear as the work goes forward. This is from the early 1960s. 10 years from now, for real, I just taught seminar 23 to some of you. In seminar 23, he just shows up with a piece of rope and starts tying knots. And for real, the lectures are studying the knots and how the ropes loop around and stuff like this, a completely topological turn away from language and towards topography. The same that I'm telling you about here with the mapping and the constellation and the yarn pinned to the wall. I'm not gonna take any more questions. I'm gonna drag us forward, okay? We have just a little bit more time before we need to take a break. I'm clocked at 11.16. You have me until 12.30, and by God, you're gonna get your money's worth. <clears throat> Page 677, the last bit that we read here, once the structure of language is recognized in the unconscious, what sort of subject can we conceive of for it? That's the question. If you know the unconscious is structured like a language in ways that we have described, what kind of a human being can we derive from that? What can we learn about human beings? <clears throat> and then you'll see Lacan immediately shifts to the vertical pronoun I, which is a shifter. Do you know what he means by shifter? <clears throat> What's a shifter? Do you see the passage I'm looking at here? I as signifier where it is nothing but the shifter. I can tell you what he means. <clears throat> the shifter is also the shifter that allows you to shift your car into a different gear. The same way that an, a vertical bar or an eye might allow you to shift into a different gear. That's part of what he means. But in linguistics, a shifter is a certain type of utterance. What is it? an indexical voila yes <clears throat> whoever uses the vertical pronoun i they are now its referent when you use it as in i'm the kind of person who likes to it refers to you when i use it i'm the kind of person who doesn't like to now i'm the referent it shifts depending on who is speaking that is its most important part <clears throat> but I want to emphasize this. 
In a concern for method, we can try to begin here with the strictly linguistic definition of I as signifier. Notice he's telling you we are just beginning here, where it is nothing but the shifter or indicative that qua grammatical subject of the statement designates the subject insofar as he is currently speaking. This is what I'm getting at here. To currently speak and use the vertical pronoun I is to have it designate you or indicate you, index you, if you will. <clears throat> but this is the important part. It only indexes you at the level of the sentence. <clears throat> the grammatical subject is your identity as spoken in language. There's a difference between the I referred to in, I'm the kind of person who likes to watch movies. And the other being that felt compelled in that moment to tell you that I'm the kind of person that likes to watch movies. What is it about me and how I'm feeling in that moment that makes me want to represent myself to you as someone who likes to watch movies? The grammatical subject is the version of you that appears in language to others. And that's important, grammatical subject, because it appears only in the level of grammar. Examples. <clears throat> the selfie that you took of yourself at that dinner and then posted on Instagram. That selfie is the grammatical subject, which is not the same as the person who posted it. There's the you that is represented in that selfie. And then there's the you who on a particular morning while feeling especially disgusting in pajama pants that you've been wearing for six days decided to post that image. There are two yous. There's the you that appears put together, composed, living their best life, having an amazing dinner, at the level of the selfie. In fact, if you look around at the screens right now in front of you, look at the people who are not showing their cameras, they're not turned on, but instead you can see pictures of them. Now, I don't mean to talk shit about people, that's not what I'm getting at here. My point is that everyone who has a frozen image of themselves up on display, they all look pretty awesome to me. It's quite the opposite. I think they look fucking killer. They're just like so smooth looking. And oh my gosh. Hey, if you, hey, y'all, listen, if you have, if you turn your camera off and an image of you pops up, do it. I want to see you at your best. Show me what you got. Come on now. I'll, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. I missed that part. <laughs> yeah. So what you want to do is, oh, damn, you all, I'm scrolling through here. Let me tell you, um, you all look like the therapist's. I wish I had everyone except Mimi who has a picture of their dog, which I think is freaking awesome. But no, I'm just kidding. So I'm looking around here. We have some scenery, but most of it is like y'all looking at your best. Which is great. Me at my best. Absolutely. The grammatical subject is the image of you that appears when you shut your camera off on Zoom. That's the grammatical subject. It's you as you want others to see you. And it is very rarely the version of you that you find most disgusting. 
your virtual self is somehow eccentric, different from, outside of your in real life self. Let me reiterate this. There's the image of you that you posted on Instagram having that meal. And then there's the you who on a particular morning wearing some nasty ass pajama pants felt the urge, the impulse to post that image. What Lacan is here saying is that the same thing occurs when you use the pronoun I. There is a splitting that happens, a splitting of the subject, a splitting of the subject that is represented like this, a splitting of the subject into two different fields. There's the field that is grammatical, the field of the grammatical subject, the GS, you as you appear in language. And then there is another one, the one that we're about to talk about, which is that of the enunciating subject. There's you as you are spoken in language, and then there is you as the speaker of those words, and they are different. They are fundamentally divergent beings. But here's the hook. The hook is that they are also both you. And whatever it is that you are, you are the relationship. You are the set that contains those two elements. You're both. I'm both. We each are. So it's tempting to say, well, the grammatical subject, the selfie on Instagram, that's not real. That's not me. That's fake. But here I am on the other side. This is the real me. And you do shit like that too, right? You'll post a picture on Instagram and you'll tag it, no filter. Feel me, right? That's called the realist style. When you go out of your way to pretend like you have not gone out of your way to appear a certain way. It's like spending $400 on a pair of jeans that are about to disintegrate because they're so worn out. It's like spending $80 in San Francisco, which is about how much it costs, to get a haircut that makes it look like you just rolled out of bed. It's about spending even more than that, ladies, hundreds of dollars on makeup that makes it look like you're not wearing any makeup. You go out of your way to make it seem like you're not pretending. The elaborate artifact of keeping it real. <clears throat> Is the grammatical subject you because it's the you that you want others to see or is it beyond that? Is it just it's you because it's the part of you that wants others to see you in this way? The grammatical subject, yeah, great question, is this. It's the ego. It's the moi. It's the me, 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 me. That's what we're working at. It's the me, me, me. M for moi, which means me, which points to the ego. And I say points to the ego because the grammatical subject is a little more complicated than that. If you were to trace it through the completed graph, it would be the split subject at the bottom right. If you turn to page 684, you can look at graph two and even see this thing unfolding. You don't even need the complete graph. The split subject down at the bottom right, that's you in the pajama pants, feeling all thunked up. 
And then there is this ideal ego just above it. That's the version of you that you think is the best. I likened it earlier to the poster that hung above your bed when you were a teenager. It's the celebrity that you think you might actually look like because somebody told you once that you look like that celebrity. It's this better than you version of you that you aspire towards. The ego is that left turn from the ideal ego to the M. It's a composite version of you. So what you're posting online when you post a selfie, it's not just an image of you at your best. It's an image of you at someone else's best. It's an image of you that you think might remind other people of better than you's. So what goes into the production and selection of a selfie is not just, is this my best self, but how close does this self approximate selves that I believe are better than me even? You don't just post any selfie, you post the one that makes you look most like the celebrity that somebody once identified you with. That's the ideal ego, the, the celebrity that props up your ego. You can see this very clearly anytime you do the one thing that I'm sure everybody in this room has done. Everybody on this call has done one thing, I guarantee it. It is not use the bathroom. Some of you have not gone to the bathroom yet today. It's not eat. Some of you haven't eaten yet. Maybe wake up. Wake up's a kind of a good one. Nah, I bet everybody on this call has looked at themselves in the mirror at least once, even if only at a glance. That version of you that appears in the mirror is what gives you your ideal ego, your specular image. The speculum is the mirror, right? This gets back into some old Lacan stuff. You can look up the mirror stage and read about it on your own. It's usually the thing that everybody who wants to talk about Lacan has read. You can ask them, ask your instructors. They're like, oh yeah, the mirror stage. Yeah, yeah, the mirror stage. Yeah, yeah, baby in front of the mirror, got it. Which is great. I'm glad that they're reading any Lacan. The point here though is that when you post something online, that grammatical self, it's not just your ego because in the Lacanian tradition, the ego is a composite. It's a collection of things that have been cobbled together to give you a sense of self. Your sense of me is not strictly comprised of materials of your own choosing, certainly not of your own making. Your sense of self is comprised of all this other shit that the world has lowered into your life. Norms, expectations, and so forth. The ego is a composite structure is what I want to get at, but that is also included in the grammatical subject. Sam, could I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. With the grammatical subject, uh, I know Lacan's got uh, more than, you know, small interest in cybernetics. The grammatical subject, is that a positive selection? Like, I want you to see me as this sort of person, or is it a negative selection? Like, I don't want you to see me as that sort of person. Both. But because, because this thing operates in the field of language, every positive indication is also a negative indication. The same way that, remember the cat definition. In order to understand the meaning of cat, there's the positive term I'm looking for. I have to understand all this other shit that cat is not. K 
cat does not equal fur, but fur is associated with cat. It's connected in a differential way. So anytime you're posting something online, let's say with our example, you are asking people, yes, to recognize you affirmatively in a certain way, but you're also asking them to recognize you that way in the context of other possible recognitions. So let me give you another example, an example we've already heard. When you post an image online, even some of you who have um, your screens up now, um, your, your, your placeholder images, you can see people that are looking quite natural. You post an image of yourself like kind of in the moment with the $300 makeup that makes it look like you're not wearing makeup, the $400 jeans that look like they're about to disintegrate because they're so worn out, the $80 haircut that makes it look like you just woke up out of bed and you're having a natural moment. You're just smiling big. You're just having a natural moment. What you're inviting there, the kind of recognition that you seek from others is you don't just want them to see you as the kind of person that keeps it real. You are asking the world to see you as the kind of person that keeps it real distinct from all those fucking posers out there who try to make it look like they're all staged. Like, you know, the idea here, in other words, is that the recognition you seek is a differential recognition relative to other people whom you do not wish to be identified with. That's why you hashtag no filter. Because what you're basically calling out is all the fools that take pictures of themselves and then apply elaborate filters to make themselves look better. And what you're trying to say is, I'm not them. So it's both, Chandler. It's a positive, affirmative identification of you, but it is also deriving meaning from its differential relationship to what you're not. I'm not the kind of person that uses filters. You see, for instance, even with if we march it back to the I'm the kind of person who likes to watch movies. What you're basically saying there is I'm not the kind of person who likes to read books. Think about it. I'm the kind of person who likes to watch movies suggests that you're a little looser. You're just a little looser than all those stuck up book nerds. Because think about it, books are private. No one has ever read a book with another person. Yeah, you can read a book out loud, like you did in elementary school with your class, but the fundamental modern experience of reading, the experience of fiction is a private experience. Most reading is done by yourself. We read alone, we read privately. Movies though, cinema, the development and advancement of cinema was always fundamentally a collective experience. Movies were meant to be watched with others. So when you tell somebody, I'm the kind of person who likes to watch movies, and I just chose this example at random, we're just working with it. What you're basically telling them is, I have room in my life for you. I can do things with you. I like to relax with others, and maybe you could be one of them. But if you're like, oh, I just like to read books. I really like to have time to myself. I'm really not, I'm really not a people person. You feel me? Like, you're not saying that. You're saying, I like to do something that in the collective unconscious, if you will, in the collective unconscious, signifies that you're somebody out and about, somebody on the scene, somebody who goes to see movies with others in public, perhaps even strangers. So on the one hand, you're saying positively, please see me as somebody who is a film buff. But what you're also saying is, 
I'm not the kind of person that's just going to read a book in silence by myself. You feel me? Notice your choice of the word movie too. You didn't say film. And you know, as soon as somebody shows up and uses the word film, that they're going to try and put some boring ass black and white shit in front of you and expect you to watch it and enjoy. Film. I enjoy films. Like, great. It's in a language nobody speaks anymore. And it's in black and white. And you're going to tell me it's a masterpiece, a work of art. And I'm just going to be here and be like, this ain't a movie, man. This shit is boring. This shit is boring. I want to watch Fast and Furious 13. Right? A movie also suggests that you're kind of easygoing. So even within, I'm trying to get it, even within the genre of movie watchers or cinematic experiencers, you're trying to carve out a special place for you. I'm not a film buff. I just enjoy watching TV. Notice you didn't say TV either, because TV would be even more vapid. I like to watch eight episodes of Alone before bed every night. You're not saying that. You like to watch movies. And those of you that know, that time of the night, maybe tonight will be one of them, you go to Netflix, you turn that shit on, and you're going to have a choice. Do you want to watch a film or a movie or just a show? And you might ask your partner, you'd be like, what do you want to do tonight? What do you feel like? Uh, let's just watch an episode. Yeah, I'm tired too. Let's just watch an episode of something instead of a movie. In these moments though, you're doing the work of positively identifying yourself as a certain type of critter, but also in a differential relationship to other types of critters. So the same logic of the dictionary holds here. The same logic of the unconscious being structured like a language holds here. Everybody good? Okay. The next figure I want to focus on here is that of the enunciating subject. So we were just on page 677, 800 in the French reading down. We read the paragraph that begins in a concern for method. And what it says there is that the vertical pronoun I is nothing but a shifter. It's indicative that as a grammatical subject of the statement, which we just discussed, designates the subject insofar as he is currently speaking. The key word here for us is designates. To designate is something very particular. Note the next paragraph. That is to say, it designates the enunciating subject, but does not signify him. This is obvious from the fact that there may, may be no signifier of the enunciating subject in the statement. An extremely important and revealing passage. The grammatical subject is the version of you that you try to display for others. It's the selfie. It's the I statement. It's the part of you, it's your best foot. You always want to put your best foot forward. It's your first impression. It's all of these ways that we talk about trying to present yourself. It's the presentational work that you see going on when people turn off their cameras on Zoom. That's the grammatical subject. What Lacan's saying, though, is that Part of what is also in differential relationship to this grammatical subject is the version of you that felt the need to put forth that image, 
That version is called the enunciating subject, and you can see it here. It is designated by the grammatical subject, but not signified. The reason why Lacan puts it that way is because most of the work that the grammatical subject does is to keep the enunciating subject in the dark. That's the part that you don't want somebody to see. That's you in the nasty ass pajama pants that you've been wearing for three days. That's the part that you're not showing. So the grammatical subject designates this other, less attractive, you think, version of yourself. But it does not signify it. Because part of the job of the grammatical subject is to place the enunciating subject under erasure. Think about, again, what happens when you turn off your video. What's happened right now is I have placed the version of me that was live and embodied that you could see under erasure. I've put something in front of it. Now you can't see me. You can still hear me. The enunciating subject is still here, but not as it is now. The grammatical subject is like a persona. And if you think about this in the Latin tradition, persona was a mask that actors would wear. So you see this very classically represented in the faces of tragedy and comedy. There's the smiling, crazy ass looking face or mask of comedy that gives you the deranged clown in the modern tradition. And then you have the face of tragedy, which is like, oh, you know, it's all upset. Those masks were originally things that actors in the Latin tradition would put on their faces so that you could tell what was up with them. A persona is that. A grammatical subject is that. It's the mask that you throw up that designates because it tells somebody that there's something behind it. If you want a really good word for this, what you're seeing right now when you look at my image, it is a veil. The veil designates a behind the veil. It brings with it something behind it, which is why you can hear the patient stumble and stammer symptomatically and guess What's that connected to clinically? What's the clinical structure that causes them to stammer every time they try to talk about their da -da 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 daddy? You see, the symptom here would be the persona, not unlike the grammatical subject. And your job is to plumb its depths, to figure out the enunciating subject behind the image, veiled in the image designated but not signified by this image. It's careful work that Lacan is doing here. <clears throat> In fact, he says, this enunciating subject, he says the only way that we can really capture this in French is with the French ne. You see this right here on page 677. The enunciating subject, he captures it with the French signifier ne. Now I can just tell you, there's no, there's no English equivalent to this. I can't figure it out. But the closest I can come, and thanks here go to Bruce Fink, the closest I can come is an expression that would go something like this. 
um, I couldn't help but notice. Lacan's trying to get at here. There's a version of us, the enunciating subject, you in the nasty pajama pants. Remember, this is all going to point to the unconscious. If the ego conscious version of yourself as the grammatical subject, the enunciating subject placed under erasure by the proliferation of this image is going to be the unconscious. It's going to be not the moi, but the je, not the me, but the I, not the self, but the subject, not the conscious ego, but the unconscious structure. So you see how these things, these pistons are working here. In the case of this nay, the best opportunity we have for it is, I couldn't help but, I can't stop myself from, I can't resist, I couldn't resist. That's a great one for this. The nay he's getting at here is that in these statements, I couldn't help myself. It shows that you are split. It shows that there are two of you. There's the version of you that did what it just did. And then there's the version that tried to keep you from doing it, but failed. I could not help but call you a shit bird. I couldn't help but notice, right? I couldn't help but notice that you take this bus every single day. Basically what you're telling them is like, listen, I'm sorry if this invades your privacy, but I couldn't help but notice da 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 da, da. There are two of you going here. That's what he's getting at with the French nay here. The enunciating subject can only be represented when the self doubles back. There's a version of you that spoke and one that tried not to. A version of you that tried to speak and a version of you that held back. It is precisely here in this back and forth that you get a sense of this other scene, this behind the scene, behind the veil. I feel like we're not quite there yet, but I, I'm just wondering, like, does the enunciating self ever get to pose Chevois to itself from itself absent the lens of the other? You know, like, is there ever a pure, and if so, how, but maybe that's later. If eventually, that, that's what you would like to be able to do. So the end of analysis is not the end of self-analysis. The kind of mindfulness and self-compassion that Lacanian psychoanalysis culminates in, the type of jouissance that psychoanalysis culminates in, is one that produces for you ever-recurring opportunities to ask yourself, chevoi. Notice, you're not saying, what do I want? The question is still, chevoi, what do you want? It just happens to be addressed to you now. What do you want? And you think, you think this is only the question of the psychotic. The difference though is that the psychotic thinks they're talking to somebody else. That's the nature of the delusion. The psychotic produces in their own voice, the voice of another and asks it, what do you want? From our vantage point, it's all originating from the same speaking subject. The psychotic doesn't think that though. That's the nature of the hallucination is they actually think it is another being there with them, in them. 
hence again the tinfoil, in order to keep themselves from being invaded by these exorbitant others, God, Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England. In order to keep these beings out, the NSA, Mark Zuckerkorn, face crack, all the stuff that tries to get in, they're listening, man. I got to put a piece of, I, gotta, I keep a piece of tape over the camera on my laptop because the NSA is watching me. That paranoid delusion, it's a good reminder that the basic structure of the ego is a paranoid one. Narcissists are the most paranoid people you know. They can't imagine a world where somebody wouldn't want to watch them through their laptop screen, which is, of course, a defense mechanism against the great truth that every narcissist knows. Nobody cares about you. You're not worth observing. You're not important. No one's watching. No one is paying any attention to you. That's the truth that the narcissist can't bear. And the defense is the scotch tape or whatever over the, I guess it wouldn't be scotch, right? It would be like masking tape over the camera. So you have at the level of hyper-driven egos, the very same paranoiac structure that you see in psychotics on a regular basis, except it's not so overdriven because the ego still has a really strong connection to reality. They're not wrapping their heads in tinfoil. They're not living on the street. They're not wrapping their feet in like trash bags and all the kind of shit that you usually see when you live in a big city. The psychotic doesn't show up that way, but the paranoiac structure of the ego does come through here. The question, go ahead again, yeah. I was gonna say something, does that, it makes me think that that's part of what you said earlier about this sort of more I wouldn't say epitome, but part of the the pinnacle of being by oneself, being with oneself, is having the, the grammatical and the enunciating self speaking to each other directly as part of that. You actually, in that moment, would allow the enunciating subject a chance to speak. That would be ideal. And that's why, again, I want to emphasize the question, Chevoi. What do you want? Another way to ask it, think about this, the enunciating subject asking the grammatical subject, the version of you in sweatpants asking the version of you on Instagram right now. What do you want from me? Why won't you leave me alone? Think about this too. When we take a break, some of you are gonna go check your mail not just your email, although the same logic applies, you're gonna go check your mailbox and you're gonna get a letter in the mail. And without even opening that letter, you are gonna know who it's from, what sent you that letter, and you're gonna know, fuck, there's a bill in there, or there's this in there, there's that in there. And you're gonna look at that letter and you're gonna say, what do you want from me? Why are you sending me this Google Fiber? I'll never use you, why? Why would you do that? Here's the thing though. What you are asking that question to is not just the address printed in the upper left-hand corner. You're also asking it of the name to whom the letter is addressed. That is also the grammatical subject. The grammatical subject is that version of you that is attached to a bank account somewhere right now. It's the version of you that is circulating in print. It's the version of you that reputation.com is trying to clean up right now. 
There are versions of you that are in circulation in capitalist economies that are not the version of you that is showing up right here. If you want to know where this version of you appears, it is in the letters that form the names in the lower left-hand corners of everybody's screen right now. That is also the grammatical subject. So you can see if you just look at the screen in front of you, I'm looking at mine, I see a version of myself, which I love tremendously. And then in the lower corner here, I see it says Samuel McCormick. This is also the grammatical subject. Even without putting up my selfie, I can still see the two versions of me. There's the version of me here in the screen, and then there's the version of me down here. Lacan says that listening to a patient's speech is like listening to a musical score. You have to be able to hear all the different registers of sound. You have to hear the grammatical subject speaking, and you have to hear the enunciating subject muffled beneath, or those moments where the enunciating subject spikes up, interrupting the flow of the grammatical subject. But the idea is that you would have these different levels, the same way you see on the very screen in front of you, the screen that allows you to be here today. There's me, and then there's Samuel McCormick, whatever the hell that is. And my question sometimes to Samuel McCormick is, what do you want? And Samuel McCormick's question to me is often, what do you want? I said earlier too, that when you put these two things together, you have the split subject. This is how we get the split subject split by the fact that you exist at once in your body, embodied, that's your enunciating subject, in a field of affect and feeling, but also in a disembodied state. That is the field of language, of the grammatical subject. Lacan's point is that the bar that divides you into these two beings is linguistic. It's because we have access to symbols that we can symbolize ourselves primarily, that we in turn split ourselves into two beings. One that appears in and as the symbol. This is your name in the lower left-hand corner of the screen. And then there's the version of you that's showing up behind it. Now, technically speaking, we would say that these are both grammatical subjects because I'm not here naked. You can't smell me. You don't know that I'm lactating right now. I got all that tucked away. You see? So we're all dealing with the grammatical subject, but for purposes of illustration, you can see the difference between your printed name in the lower left-hand corner of the screen and the image of you that shows up looking like you look all fucked up and nasty. Is this what he's getting at on, on 678? He talks about the most significant being the cut. Yep, that's it. At the top of page 678, just to the right of 801, you can see the transparency of the classical subject divides. The classical subject is the one we started with today. 
with this emphasis on being whole, complete, um, self-sufficient. If you think about the role of autonomity, of autonomos, self-legislating and Aristotle forward, the idea of the individual, the idea of the self would be somebody who could be self-sufficient, who doesn't need others, who is whole and complete to themselves. This is an autonomous subject, auto meaning self, and nomi from the Greek nomos meaning law. You would make your own laws, autonomy. And what Lacan is here saying is there ain't no such thing. You are never sufficient to yourself. In fact, the truth of the matter is that the classical subject is always divided, undergoing as it does the effects of fading that specify the Freudian subject due to its occultation by an ever purer signifier. All he's talking about there is language. The way that being a language-using animal also results in a splintering of us. Your dog is not divided in this way. The lizard on the rock is not divided in this way. They are not split subjects. We are. And it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what kind of symbol system you have. If all you have is sign language, you are still mediated by the signifier and thus splintered into a version of you that can appear in language because you can talk about yourself and people can mail you letters and they can talk about you. And then a version of you that sometimes feels like you need to be talked about. A version of you that feels like sometimes you need to be at the center of attention. There's a multiplicity of selves, which is why Freud begins his book on group psychology with the now totally truistic statement that doing individual psychology is always already doing social psychology. Nobody is self-sufficient. And that's the great point about language here. Autonomy doesn't exist because the very medium of human experience, language, is not of your own making. In order to be even neurotic, forget about normal, whatever that means. Normal just means average. But in order to be a human subject in this sense, you have to allow yourself to be mediated by language. And that language is alien initially to you. Still is. You didn't make it up. That language was given to you. You were forced to adapt it, forced to appropriate it, forced to absorb it. Your dog didn't. The lizard on the rock never will. It's part of our thing, which is why humans are always so fascinated. Are, are dolphins really communicating? What's up with dolphins? Let's talk about all the animals. What about these elaborate bird dances? We get into all this effort to try and find symbolicity in the natural world. And you can go pretty far in that direction, but not nearly as far as we have taken it. An animal can cover its own tracks and make it seem like it's gone somewhere that it hasn't. But it can't cover its own covering of its own tracks in order to do the double deception that we can with language, with language. 
So yes, to answer the question, <clears throat> top of 678, that division that the subject undergoes is an effective language. And that's exactly where I want to turn next. <clears throat> I want to suggest blasting a little bit forward into some mathematical theory that you're probably not going to like. That this split subject that I've been drawing here, you can see the big S, and then you can see the grammatical subject and the enunciating subject, this version, this tripartite self that we're working with here. Three, because you don't just have the grammatical subject and the enunciating subject, you have also the bar that divides them, the minimum amount of distance needed to keep these two entities distinct. That is a third element, well represented in Cantorian set theory, which is something Lacan is gonna get more into, but for now, we can write like this. This is a set. Human being, the self, whatever we want to call it, is the relationship between a grammatical subject that is constantly being posited, hence the one, and an enunciating subject that is constantly being zeroed out. This is Cantorian set theory, and it's one of the most sophisticated ways of understanding what Lacan is doing here. It's tempting to think that we are this. This is the ego, this is the grammatical subject. But Lacan's point is that you actually need two other elements in order to make this thing cohere. There has to be the embodied speaker that is zeroed out, and then the differential relationship here represented by the comma that connects these two elements, uniting them into a single set, hence the set theoretical brackets. I'm throwing this out just to get a little loose as we approach lunch, but also so that you know that there are some very precise mathematical ways of representing what Lacan is doing. And then I also wanna remind you that he thought by learning all of this, you could do better for your patients. He thought that when you learned this, when you had this under your belt, you were better equipped to help, especially the difficult cases. And let me tell you, those are the ones that went to him. We've got about 30 minutes before our first break. I'm tempted to keep going forward. Bear in mind, if you actually look at the completed graph of desire, all I've described from you so for us so far is the split subject, a single entity in the bottom right. Now, as you'll see, I've already been taking you through about six or seven of the terms, but right now, the only one that has explicitly been brought to our attention is the split subject. Let's pause for a second. What questions do you have at this point? What can I further clarify? What do you need an example of? Let me know.
Did you, uh, oh, go for it. Sorry about that, Hunter. Um, yeah, I was wondering, um, are we, would you say that we are inherently fragmented beings and therefore we created language to like better fragment ourselves, I guess in an unconscious way or, or has language been the cause of our fragmentation? The latter. Okay. But I want to be very clear about this. And I have to just tell you, this is probably going to be the most difficult part. It's the most difficult conceptual part of this model, this approach to analysis that, um, that, I, that I know of. Um, language has the effect of fragmenting us. Because there is language, we are split subjects. Because we're always in two worlds at once. One is sociolinguistic represented by Instagram, the US mail system, Zoom. Remember all the examples I brought out. The other is bioanimalistic. That's the biological self, the animal self, the self that sweats, the, sweat, the self that is now hungry. And we are separated into these two selves by language. That's why I say the effect of language is a splitting of human subjectivity into these two elements. You're always embodied as a bioanimalistic being, but also disembodied. Here's the grammatical subject as a symbolized being. You all have social security codes. You have that shit memorized. You could, we could each right now try out our social security numbers. Blah, 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 blah. That's also you. That's the grammatical you. That's the state's version of you. That is also a version of you. It's a number, but it also operates linguistically. So because there is language, there will always be at least two of you connected in a differential relationship that forms your conception of self. Okay, that's the part we've got so far. What I want to emphasize, though, is that doesn't mean you were whole before language intervened. You were not a whole coffee cup before somebody broke your shit in half. It doesn't work that way. And this is one of the squirreliest conceptual points that Lacan makes. The fact of fragmentation and lived human experience does not mean that you were once unfragmented prior to. And any belief that you were is simply nostalgia. Nostalgia is not a memory of an experience you had. It's a longing for a past that was never yours. There was no Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve were ejected at which point the Garden of Eden becomes the source of what you've heard described here as the fundamental fantasy. Hot tubs, cedar piles into which you crawl, weighted blankets, long embraces, dreams and fantasies of being swallowed, Think about this shit, man. I just love being in the ocean. I just love swimming in it. I love just feeling totally encompassed and held by the sea. All of these, quote, uteromorphic 
fantasies are not longings to return to a past that is now gone. No, they are longings to accomplish a human experience that can only be experienced as lost. That is absolutely key here. It's lost not because you once had it and now it's gone. It's that in the wake of language, where all we know is fragmented subjectivity, because we are linguistic beings, we can imagine fragmentation in a differential relationship with something that's unfragmented. We can imagine heaven. We can imagine wholeness. The lizard doesn't know that it's whole, pre-fragmented, anything like that. The lizard don't know shit. The lizard doesn't know that the rock is not the lizard. It's only in the field of language where we have terms like lizard and rock that that difference even can be pronounced. So you see, that's the thing. And if you run this through various relationships to food, various hunter cultures, when you actually start looking this one through, you can see the way that people are in their lived environments. To be more like the lizard is to have a very different and non-alienated relationship to the squirrel that you just destroyed with the hammer in order to eat and live. But we as human beings have these great distinctions enabled by language that allow us to dream of worlds without distinction. That dream is the fundamental fantasy, which doesn't mean that we were once whole and then we lost it. It means that wholeness can only ever be experienced as lost. And that's different. You don't have to understand it right now. You can just write that shit down. We weren't whole once and then we lost that. It's not like the, the Garden of Eden was where we all were and it was all great and then we fucked it up and had to be kicked out. No. The Garden of Eden is a dream perpetuated by people who have always only ever lived outside it. That's why I liken it to nostalgia, longing for a past you didn't have. Make America great again. That's nostalgia. Great for who? My mom's brown. It wasn't great for her. That ain't her dream. But the idea of a return to some sort of a, again, uteromorphic, everything is complete, Garden of Eden, they were naked and unashamed. It doesn't mean that they were that and then became this linguistically split subject. No, it's a product of linguistic splitting, fading. The dream of wholeness is a function or an effect of being divided. And let me put this very clearly. If we were all united together, one human race, there would never have been the need in the first place for a great orator to rise up and proclaim us one. E pluribus unum would not exist as a phrase if at the start we were all unum. There'd never be a need for anybody to say, I love you. 
we're together till death do us part. If that were an original fact of human experience, it is not. Wholeness is the fantasy that is perpetuated by a world of division. I want to be really clear about that. You didn't lose Eden, but you can experience it as a loss. Say again. Lacan was Picasso's therapist? Didn't matter. Sorry. That's cool. I didn't realize we were unmuted. Hold on. Oh, that's okay. I had a, I had a question. Um, yeah, go ahead. If I could go back to the relationship between um, Heidegger and, and Lacan. Uh, on my first read through this, I'm obviously brand new to Lacan. Um, it felt like he was still trying to uh, bridge the subject-object uh, split. And I think I'm starting to reformulate that now just in terms of like, He's being more granular. Um, if you were to take Heidegger's tool analysis, the hammer's broken. So now we're analyzing it in a very granular way. Um, and I, just, um, I also saw something Zizek writes that uh, Lacan is not a Heideggerian, um, but Lacan uses like Dasein. And I was just curious about that relationship. Yeah, that's great. And there's, again, I want to emphasize that um, Early Lacan is very much indebted to this German philosopher named Heidegger. Um, the extent of that debt, some of you have read um, my recent book, The Chattering Mind, is a big topic. It's a real topic. It's in fact something to be considered. Um, I wouldn't say though um, that Zizek is wrong and that makes Lacan a Heideggerian, but he did learn a lot from Heidegger. And the example that you're bringing up is a very good one from early Heidegger uh, 1920s, where he's talking about somebody, let's just say, working on the roof of their house with a hammer. And they're swinging away, swinging away with the hammer to the point that they don't even realize they're using a hammer until the hammer breaks. And Heidegger's point is a phenomenological point. It's about noticing and attunement. The question Heidegger asks is a little different from the one Lacan asks. Heidegger wants to know, at what point does any entity in the world appear before me as something to be reflected upon, contemplated, considered, and the like? And his argument about tool use is that when we're just picking the thing up and using it, we're not thinking about it. But as you can see in this coffee cup, it's been cracked. There was once a time when I reached to pick up this coffee cup and the finger piece popped off and the coffee fell. And suddenly I was acutely aware of the fact that I was drinking coffee. Phenomenologically, most of the time you pick up something, take a drink without even thinking about it. Some of you are doing it right now. Your mind is elsewhere, you're directed elsewhere. Same with pens. You pick up a pen, you start to write with it. You don't even think about how you're doing this until you try and the pen is out of ink. It's at the level of technological breakdown that entities in the world start to jump out to us as entities for thought. Lacan is not oblivious to this. In fact, I think he likes it. It's as broken, as 
malfunctioning, that we start to become aware of things. For Lacan, the great malfunctioning tool that brings us closer to awareness is speech. It's at the level of the stutter or the stammer, the hesitation, when the fluid articulations of the ego start to crack and rupture. And some of you that know my earlier work know that this is something that I've spent a lot of time working on. Hesitations, pauses, slight intonations, interruptions of any kind in speech, all the stuff that Freud would refer to as a slip. These are the ways that the tool of language breaks down and gives us an opportunity to significantly reflect on our relationship to that tool. The same way that a hammer that was ready to hand in the Heideggerian sense when broken now becomes present to hand and subject to reflection. Heidegger's point is phenomenological. It doesn't mean he's not concerned about truth. Lacan's point is not phenomenological, it's psychological. And he is concerned with truth, the truth of human subjectivity. And his goal is always the same, happiness here on earth, happiness in the midst of fragmentation, happiness as a split subject. Before we go, I wanna talk about love. And not just given who's here today with us, but just because it's important. One of the primary stakes here, after analysis, after the work has been done, is an opportunity to love like you never have. And people ask Lacan, what's that about? Self-compassion, I can understand that. But being with other people, tell me about that. Lacan, what is love? He answers, love is giving what you don't have. Some people would add to somebody who doesn't want it, but Lacan himself says, love is giving what you don't have. What does that mean? Giving what you don't have. If you don't have something, you lack it. If you give it to somebody else, if you share lack with another, it's another way of saying that you allow them the same experience of lack. There's no math theme for love. It doesn't lend itself to fantasy, or to any of the other little compositions that we have in the graph of desire. But it would have something to do with being cool enough with your own split subjectivity to allow the same in another. You might think of this as a kind of radical approach to acceptance or something along these lines. But remember Lacan's definition, giving what you don't have, this is love. And to have it reciprocated, I think sometimes <clears throat> that the ultimate horizon of this Lacanian stuff, as far as human beings are concerned, is a way of being with another person that allows lack not to be a problem, overcome at the level of the dream of Eden, overcome by a series of spa treatments where you and your partner hold hands as you get massaged, nothing like that. It's a little grittier than that. It's about being fucked up together, if you will. And I would like to suggest that as we think about this as a clinical practice, I'd like to suggest that there is something satisfying, productive, not maladaptive, 
well adaptive about being able to be fucked up with somebody. You were not an addict and now you're not. You're always going to be an addict. That's who you are. That's what you are. And when you find somebody who's cool with that, who can hear that, you're in a different place. I think the goal of Lacanian analysis is to turn out subjects who know how to love in this way, who can see split subjectivity as a handsome condition instead of the decline of humanity, the worst part of modernity and so forth. It's just the opposite. I don't know what kind of mood that results in, maybe a kind of humility. I think self-compassion comes very naturally to people who have undergone Lacanian psychoanalysis and reached the end. But uteromorphic dreams of wholeness and all the fundamental fantasies thereof, those are the things that usually you don't see when you meet people like this. It doesn't mean that they're happy with their misery or with you with yours. It just means that they have a kind of contentment, which is different from happiness, a kind of ease around discomfort. I think that's worth holding in mind as we take a little break here. I think it's worth holding in mind as we start moving deeper into the graph of desire. When we come back from lunch or whatever this break is for you, I want to talk a little bit about how it is that language comes into our lives. And I want to show you at a really granular level, even at the risk of verging onto developmental psychology, how this shit happens how it is that we wind up as split subjects and how it is that others, primary caregivers in particular, play a part in this. What I'm trying to get at here is some way of showing us where we come from as linguistic beings, but also in the spirit of this essay, what I wanna show is how we become these desirous fuck-ups, these people that are never satisfied, that are constantly miserable, that constantly have to buy the next thing. How did we become so vulnerable to capitalism? It has something to do with how we are introduced in the field of language. It has something to do with developmental psychology. And I think Lacan has a pretty good finger on this. I bet you'll be able to come up with some other people who also have good fingers on this. But for our purposes, when we come back, I wanna talk about the introduction into language, how that works, how it produces the fantasy of wholeness. I wanna talk about how it also marks the origin of desire. And with that, an opportunity for something else, something beyond desire. And if you follow up the right-hand side of the graph of desire, as we did at the start of this class, beyond desire is the drive. What we wanna be able to do by the end of today is know a little bit more about how to keep the drive alive in the midst of desire. And we'll start getting this when we come back and start working developmentally on the origin of language and language use. So let's pause there. We'll see you back. What are we, what are we talking about here? 1230, 2.30? Is 2.30 when we come back? Sure. All right, let's come back at 2.30, but I will also want you to know that I'm letting you out eight minutes early and that means you owe me. You owe me eight minutes. So I reserve the right to mess with your schedule by eight minutes in the opposite direction. You know that, right?
This is a gift. This is the gift of shit. Eight minutes. Eight minutes is all you get, and I want it back. Like I said, you have to get your money's worth, right? This would be negligent of me to not give you your full time. Great. Now it's become seven minutes. So now it's <laughs> seven minutes. All right, y'all, for real, take a break. Um, thank you for this as well, because I know we didn't take a break this morning. I, of course, will not ask you to repay the gift of shit known as seven minutes, but I will see you back here at, will somebody just confirm what our time is? The lunch break is an hour and a half. Okay, so what are we talking about? Hold on. We're supposed to be back at 2 p.m. technically. Okay, great. I'll see you back here at 2 p.m.